Hello, my darling true crime angels, and welcome to Web Sleuth Radio Podcast. My name is Tricia Griffith, and I'm the proud owner of WebSleuths.com, one of the largest, and I might add, the very best true crime discussion forums in the universe. I've checked, I've checked all corners of the universe. Yeah, we, we are the best, if I do say so myself. Great posters. Okay, one of our most discussed cases is the death of Rebecca Zahau. If you go to websleuths.com, you'll see there's a huge forum on Rebecca Zahau and all the facts of the case. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to briefly go over some of the facts. We're keeping it very simple for this podcast. So if you've never heard of this case at all, that's okay. You need to know some very simple basic facts is all, and then you'll understand the whole picture. After I tell you some facts, you'll hear the interview I did with Doug Lehner, Doug is married to Rebecca Zahau's sister, Mary. Basic Facts July 11, 2011 32-year-old Rebecca Zahau is living with her boyfriend, Jonah Shacknai, in a mansion in San Diego. Jonah is very wealthy. Rebecca had her 14-year-old sister with her at the time, and she was watching Jonah's 6-year-old son, Max. Max had a terrible accident that day. He somehow fell over a railing, and he was mortally wounded. But on July 11th, no one knew that. All that was known was that Max was critically injured. Sadly, Max died on July 16th, 2011. The day after Max's accident, Adam Shacknai, Jonah's brother, flew in. That's July 12th. Rebecca picked him up at the airport. Adam stayed in the house on the mansion's property. On the morning of July 13th, Rebecca Zahau was found hanging outside over a railing of one of the bedrooms in the mansion. Rebecca was naked. She was outside, hanging, her hands tied behind her back, her ankles tied together, and she had a t-shirt in her mouth. On the door in the bedroom was painted this phrase, She saved him. Can you save her? Adam Shacknai said he found Rebecca hanging outside. He cut her down and loosened the ties around her wrist to try and feel for a pulse. Keep in mind, Adam said he loosened the ties. That's very important. The sheriff for San Diego, Bill Gore, and the coroner listed the death as a suicide. Rebecca's family didn't believe it for a minute, so they hired lawyer Keith Greer, and they sued Adam Shacknai, claiming he was responsible for Rebecca's death. It was not a suicide, they claimed, but Rebecca was murdered. In April 2018, the civil jury came back in favor of the family and agreed that Adam Shacknai was responsible for the death of Rebecca Zahau. Even with this verdict, the sheriff and the coroner refused to change Rebecca's death from a suicide to a homicide, and the sheriff has also refused to reopen Rebecca's case. Doug Lehner and his wife Mary, Rebecca's sister, sent a complaint to Sheriff Gore listing the reasons why Rebecca's death should be ruled a homicide. In this edition of Websleuth's radio podcast, Doug explains how, out of their frustration, how they came up with this list, a list that includes information that uh, I don't think we've heard before. Well, frustration, uh, anger was a lot of it. But the other part of it was all the inconsistencies that we found through with, with the, the information that came out of the civil trial and the information that came out of the sheriff's department, you know, and then with the depositions that we had, when you put all that together, 
there are a, a ton of inconsistencies with what they reported to what really happened. You know, like I said before about the knots, you have an investigative agency that I, I missed, I, I guess would be the easiest way to say it, Adam talking about loosening the knots. I mean, he said it multiple times. Okay, let's, let's, can I, can I stop you here? Because I want to take this, this a, a bit slower because this is a very, very important. Rebecca was found with her hands tied behind her back in addition to hanging and with a gag in her mouth and her ankles tied together. She was found hanging naked outside. Her hands are tied behind her back. Now, Adam Shacknai is the one who found Rebecca. He was staying at the guest house and he said he found her and cut her down. And this is where we're going now. The police are talking to Adam about Rebecca and how she was found. Now, this is very important. Before we get into what Adam says about the knots, explain about the investigator coming to your house and visually showing you what would have to have happened if Rebecca was murdered. So let's talk about the day he came to your house. This is the investigator to tell you it was a suicide. And he demonstrates something on your floor. Explain that, and then we're going to go into the interview. Okay. Um, it was actually in San Diego. Uh, it was right after Becky was killed. We flew out there, and two investigators met us at the hotel we were staying in. Um, we went to a just a private room um, off the lobby, and there was one investigator who also had interviewed Adam. So he does. He, he tells us that the knots are loose around her wrist and that he would expect that if she had been bound by another person, they would be tight. He also indicated that if someone was going to kill Rebecca, they would have bound her tightly and she would have injuries to her body. Remember, she's nude. She has no clothes on. Um, so if she, a person wouldn't willfully let be bound like this. So there would have to be some type of violent force to hold her, to stabilize her, to keep her down, and prevent her from getting up while she's being tied. And the knots would be tight, so she wouldn't be able to get away. So, you know, she can't run off or save herself or call for help. Um, and he gets up out of his chair, and he kneels down on the floor, and he demonstrates visually to Mary and I, tying up a person, making sure it's tight. And he really started to hone in on on his knee, how you would expect to see a big bruise or a bruise on her back to hold her down. And then he went on to say how she has zero marks. There's no marks on her. So Mary and I believed, after hearing all this, that the only injuries that she would have had just would have been around the neck. That's it. N nothing else mm -hmm. because they kept saying she had they, they were good at saying that she had no marks she had no injuries on her whatsoever now this detective or the investigator that interviewed adam he, he talked to adam I mean, about everything that happened heard adam tell his story about finding rebecca cutting her down doing cpr and then in that same interview adam says he says it more than once that he had loosened the knots around her wrist to check for a pulse. So at the time, 
2011, we didn't know any of this. So we just assumed that, you know, this, this investigator was being honest. I mean, why would he lie to the family? I mean, there's no reason for that. I mean, mm-hmm. we, we're not threatening. We're not doing anything. We're just sitting there listening to what happened to Rebecca. Uh, we're not questioning a whole lot. We're not demanding anything. Um, we're just listening. And he tells us very thoroughly, repeatedly, over and over again, how there were no marks and the knots were loose and he expected them to be tight with injuries. That would be more consistent with a homicide. But she has no marks and they're loose. Uh, the medical examiner, now let's fast forwarding a little bit, at autopsy, um, because he did come to my house and to tell us that you know it was a suicide, but he also said that the knots were loose around her her hands, and he went through the same uh, basically said the same thing that the investigator did that he would expect them to be tight that if you're going to tie somebody up and kill them, you're going to make sure that those knots are tight and that so they can't run away mm-hmm. well when after the civil trial, well, years later, when we get the uh, police report, or the report from the sheriff, um, most of their interviews are recorded, and there's not much written documentation from the interviews. It's mm-hmm. just it's recorded, and then they're in their report. It would say the interview was recorded, and, and you know, essentially booked into evidence. So when you listen to Adams' recording. He does. He tells the same investigator that told me that the knots were loose. Adam told him he loosened the knots. He actually describes how tight she was and the manner she was tied up in and then goes on to say he had to loosen them to check for a pulse. And Adam was pretty adamant about saying that. It wasn't, he didn't, he wasn't talking over somebody. It was just Adam talking with two investigators and he says this more than once in this this interview. Um, but they never notified anybody. They didn't tell anybody. Well, let's, let's face it. Let's, let's again lay this out here. The same investigator trying to convince you that this was absolutely a suicide showed you what would happen if it had been a murder investigation, if they, if they thought Rebecca was murdered. And in reality, that's exactly what happened. Adam Shack Knight admitted it. He had to loosen those knots. And according to the investigator, who was interviewing Adam and who spoke with you, that those knots would have been tight if this had been a murder. And she would have had more than likely a bruise on her back, which you found out she absolutely had a bruise on her back, just like the investigator said. And he is taking his own theory and ignoring it. And basically, I don't know whether he he was flat out lying or if he just didn't know that, uh, or he had forgotten that Adam had loosened the knots, or I, mean, I don't know why he would say that. But basically, you've turned his world upside down because he's just admitted that this should be a murder investigation by his own criteria, right? It should be a murder investigation, and it should be reopened. I mean, it's it's a different agency needs to look at this. It needs to be taken away from uh, San Diego Sheriff and given to somebody else. And I'm not sure how that's going to happen. If it could, it should. Um, I don't see why they would care. I mean, if, if they got something wrong or if they did miss something, which, I mean, with, with that simple conversation, they did. Mm-hmm. No. Why not give it to somebody else? Give it to another agency and let them look at it, you know, and go through it. Exactly. Because even, 
even on that review that they did after we won in civil court, there is no way that could have been conducted proper, properly. And that interview that I just described is a really good reason as to why. This isn't evidence that we have that they can't verify. This isn't a story that we have that is questionable. There's no scientific thing going on with this. This is words from Adam's mouth to their own investigators that never made it to the coroner or the, the medical examiner, Lucas. So on their second review, you would think that they would kind of go through that. They would well, find they their did. mistake. Yes, they would find the they mistake. They didn't. You know, I, I, they didn't. I mean, they, they failed. Horribly failed. So how else do we get our point across to the sheriff's office about things that they've missed? Well, we sat down and we went through the inconsistencies that we could find and we sent it to them. And, and Doug, if I could just move on to one more topic here that I, I find I, I'm incredulous when I hear this story, and that is Adam Shacknye's polygraph. He took a polygraph. What were you told about the results of Adam's polygraph as it concerned the death of Rebecca Zahau? Now, this is back in 2011. Um, I forget today. It's going to be July 15th, maybe. We're, we're still in the hotel. We're in San Diego. We, we, we left Missouri, and we were, went out to San Diego to bring Rebecca back home. And it's the same interview where we were with two investigators, and that, that, that investigator, that the same one that had told us that the knots were loose and he expected them to be tight, and later on found out that they, they were tight, uh, the same one that said that she had zero marks, well, she had a big bruise in her back, and she got four strikes to her head, and she got some other, she's got a rope burn on a weird spot on her finger that doesn't make any sense. He, we bring up, you know, Adam. Um, not as a suspect, but just as what was going on with Adam, you know. We know he found her. Uh, was Did he hear anything that night? You know, along those lines. And they came out, and that investigator said that Adam had voluntarily taken a polygraph. Great. You know, that, that's good news. And that he had passed the polygraph in record time and flying colors. I questioned that statement. It, to me, it seemed like an overkill of a, to sell me on a polygraph. Mm -hmm. And so I said, so he passed the polygraph. And then he said, yes, he did. He, he had called 911. He went through the whole story with, with Adam. He did. He said that Adam had called 911. He remained on scene. EMS arrived. You know, Coronado PD shows up and then they call the sheriff's office in for help. They get there on scene. Adam stays there on scene. He's being cooperative. You know, he's not trying to run or get away or anything like that. And, and went through about this, this polygraph about how he had, he had passed it. And, you know, we questioned it a little bit as far as, you know, that seemed kind of quick to have a polygraph within right away. And he's like, no, he did. He passed it and he did fine. He passed. He is, there is, he said there was no way. Adam Shack and I could be a suspect on this because he passed the polygraph. And we believe that. Mm -hmm. You know, we, I've got no reason not to believe these guys. You know, I mean, why would they lie? <laughs> exactly. There's nothing, there's nothing to cover up. You know, Rebecca's dead. 
Adam passed the polygraph. Made very clear to you that Adam passed that polygraph. Black and, and white, not- just done. Passed it. And the knots are loose. She has no marks, is what they're saying. These are the things that, you know, that they're, they're telling us. Mm-hmm. And it's on tape. It's, it's their own tape. They have it. If you just listen to it. So, we get everything. You know, we watch the press conference, we see all that, we get the report, and, well, their official report says that it was inconclusive, and he needed to come back for a second polygraph. Well, wait a second, that's, that's not what we were told. That's a big difference. No, that's, that's, that's a 180 of what we were told. Mm-hmm. We were told that he, he didn't do anything wrong. Nothing wrong. Nothing. He passed polygraph. He's good. He can't be a suspect cannot be a suspect at all. Then, like I said, a year or later on that year, we found out that it was ruled as inconclusive. I'm like, well, wait a second. That doesn't make sense. Well, so, I, I'm sorry. When you, that happened, I can imagine what Mary and Rebecca's mother and, and you, what you felt. What was the first thing you did? Did you call the sheriff's department? Did you? What happened? By that time... Um, I had already called the sheriff's office, questioned a few things, and very unprofessionally, I was told to never call back again. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm sorry. I think I miss, I think I misheard you. They're telling you after you call and, and say, listen, I was lied to. They said, don't ever call us again. Uh, Yes. Good God. Okay. So, um... So there was no more contact or communication within the sheriff. I, I really think their phone call, their phones only work one direction. But anyway, <laughs> so from there, uh, we do. You know, Greer gets on board. Now, Keith Greer, that's your incredible lawyer. We all love Keith Greer. He is the one that uh, basically he and Mary, uh, you know, took on a team of, of high-paid lawyers from the best and they won the case in civil court. And, and Keith Greer and your wife, Mary, I mean, they are they are to be applauded for the hard work that, that they did. So Keith Greer is your lawyer. So I'm sorry. Continue. I just wanted to give, give Keith a plug here. So please continue. So we meet with Keith Greer. We come up with a strategy and a game plan. We go to trial and we win. So after we win, uh, the sheriff says so he wants to do a review. Now, once again, uh, Keith was all on board. He's like, you know, give him a chance, you know, and Mary and I, well, this isn't our first rodeo with him. Mm-hmm. And he, he was really optimistic. He really was. Uh, to be completely honest, he was. And then when they said no, it was still a suicide, <laughs> he was really beside himself. But with the polygraph, then we had that analyzed. Now, the polygraph has been analyzed by several different polygraphists over the years. And this is Adam Adam Shacknice polygraph given to him by somebody in the San Diego Sheriff's Department, correct? Actually, no. No. The person that gave Adam his polygraph was a contractor for the San Diego Sheriff's okay. Department. Okay. Not an employee there. Got it. Okay. Uh, so you had it. You had it reexamined. Please continue. Yes. Now it's been reexamined by other people, but oh, for like different shows. But so we went ahead and we had it done ourselves. And come to find out, now this is this is public. It's it's out there on a, there's a website it's on. Um he lied. There's deception. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, there's deception on this polygraph. So now it goes from he passed with flying colors to inconclusive should come back to retest, which was never done, never asked, mm-hmm. to this same polygraph it shows deception. Yeah, it so is unbelievable. Everything is coming. I mean, everything that they did, I mean, it's slowly, it, it, it's almost like it's falling apart. Because mm-hmm. you've got, well, the knots were loose. Well, no, they were they were really tight. She had no injuries. And, and she ended up with injuries. Mm-hmm. And then out of polygraph. So, so you have this. And then you've got some of the, the evidence that's left it's on scene. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, they talked about DNA. They talked about fingerprints. It, I find it I find it very odd that the things that she needed to touch to do this are void of any fingerprints or DNA, but the things that she didn't need to touch, they seem to find them. And let's talk about the things that she needed to touch, first of all. What did she need to touch or if, to, to complete the uh, scenario that the Sheriff's Department claims happened with Rebecca? Well, I'll, I'll talk about the paint tube. Okay. Um, and that's probably the easiest one. There's a photograph out there. I think it's public too. Yeah, it has to be. Uh, there's a paint tube. And it's just, you know, it's crimped at one end. It's like a big toothpaste tube with a flip top lid. And if you look at the photograph and the crime scene photo, it's on the floor next to the bed and the lid is open, which means that the flip is open. You can squirt paint freely out of it. On the body of the paint tube, they found nothing. I mean, nothing that they could say who held it, who touched it. Now, the brush that was used, it's like this oil canvas painting brush. It's a small brush. So to paint all that on the door... Yeah, let's... Uh, I, I, we need to, excuse me, back up just a second. We're talking about what was written on the door using this paint from the tube and what was written. It's so bizarre. She saved him. Can you save her? Right. Okay, so Rebecca's fingerprints are not on the uh, on the tube of paint. We'll talk about Adams or lack thereof here in just a bit. But no fingerprints there. Okay, continue, please. Right. So nothing on the body of this paint tube. Nothing. And you would have had to use a lot of paint. To I mean, you can only squirt out so much paint on the end of the brush mm-hmm. uh, because it's just it's small. I mean, this is this is painstakingly processed to to squirt two paint out of this tube onto this little brush and paint that. I mean, it, it's a pain in the butt. Mm-hmm. So you're talking multiple times that this paint tube is going to be used by whoever's painting that on the door. Okay? okay. They found nothing on the body of the paint tube. Now, on the cap, they found Rebecca's thumbprint mm-hmm. on the cap. And remember, like I said before, it's open. It's already open, right. So it's open. So that means that she would have snapped it shut, leaving that fingerprint there, and then reopened it. Mm-hmm. Well, that doesn't make sense. I mean, what 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 good does she get from doing that? That paint tube, if she's going through this, that paint tube doesn't mean anything to her. Mm-hmm. That's a low priority for Rebecca. She just needed to paint that on the door if she did it. Right. Or it was an old thumbprint from the last time she used it and snapped it shut. Mm-hmm. Or someone put her thumbprint on there with it being opened. Mm-hmm. Those are going to be your three scenarios of how that got on there. That paint tube is not relevant to, you can't place that paint tube in Rebecca's hands doing this because why would you, where's all the other stuff she did? 
Right. Why, why you find nothing on the body, but then you find it on the open cap? Just that little thumbprint on the open cap. Very weird. Unless well, it it's is. an old, unless it's an old print, that would make more sense than anything. I mean, like I said, there's there's three different scenarios in there. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what investigators are supposed to do. They got to figure that out. They did. Mm-hmm. Then you've got the knife. Um, there were two knives in the crime scene area that were used. Um, there's there's a large knife, and then there's a smaller steak knife. Now, the larger knife does have Rebecca's fingerprints on it. Mm-hmm. Now, we're told this. This is what we're... T- um, I can't remember if we were told that at our house or if it was just in a press conference and it came that way. I, I really don't remember that. Mm-hmm. But it said that Rebecca's fingerprints were on that knife, which is a very 100% true statement. They are. Mm-hmm. They're all over it. Now, everybody that heard that would assume that the fingerprints are on the handle because that's where you hold a knife to cut. Right. Okay, but let's talk about what was the knife used for in this uh, scenario. What did the police say the knife was used for? Uh, this knife was used to cut up the rope. Okay. That's the one. It's, I don't know. It's, it's a bigger knife. It's like, it's, it's like a chef's knife mm-hmm. where it's, it's wide at one end and kind of tapers down to a fine point. Right. And it's got the bigger blade on it. Okay. Well, if you take a picture of that knife where all the fingerprints are at, she doesn't have any fingerprints on the handle. All of Rebecca's fingerprints, they're on the blade. So imagine holding this blade with your fingers, and the sharp edge is facing the palm of your hand. Sounds like she was taking it away from somebody, maybe. Well, the blade, it, her, you'd have to see how the finger arrangement is on mm-hmm. the blade. It, it's very odd. I've, I've never seen this. Um, I, I know I've never personally held a knife to cut it that way, mm-hmm. cut anything. Right. It would be very difficult. Um, but that's where the so that, that's another thing that just raises questions. So investigators look at this and they're like, okay, fingerprints are on a knife. Yes. So they just check that off and it's like, okay, her prints are in the crime scene. Just hers. We're done. Well, why don't you look at that knife? Mm-hmm. There's no way you can hold that knife and cut a rope. It's not. And even if you could do it that way, why? Why what? exactly? Who would? Do, and her time is running out mm-hmm. because she's got this midnight phone call, voicemail she heard that Max isn't going to make it, and she's dead by six forty-eight with rigor in her jaw. She's running out of time mm-hmm. to meet rigor in her jaw. All right, we'll talk about the phone call here in a minute about Max and all of that. But so she's got a. She has to have been killed. By a certain time, because when she was found, the body had uh, rigor mortis in it, and there's only a certain time frame that that can happen. But let's get back to the knife real quickly. So fingers on the blade, weird, uh, no other prints anywhere, and the police say that was used to cut the rope. Now there's a smaller knife, right? The smaller knife. There's a smaller knife that's also located in that same room. And um, I'm really not sure what it was used for, but there's there's blood on it. Um, the blood did come back as, uh, Rebecca's Mm -hmm. and now Rebecca has no wounds. Remember, we were told that she had zero marks and no injuries. And this knife handle has blood on it. It, it's, oh, it's like a wooden looking steak knife. I've never touched it, but it, Mm -hmm. it looks like it's wood handled. And it's on the handle. There's three metal rivets that hold the wood to the, 
to the knife itself. Mm-hmm. The blood goes from the bottom halfway up, just past the second rivet, and the blood is on all four sides of that handle. So that's where the blood's at on this knife. Okay. Now, Rebecca is not bleeding. Okay, she has. She's not bleeding anywhere. Um, but she was menstruating. Wasn't she? That she was not bleeding. Wasn't she, she menstruating? No, uh, yes. Okay. Uh, well, we found out later she was. Right. Um, she was, and there's blood on this knife handle. So the only way you can explain this is if she had been sexually assaulted with this knife handle. Right. There's also dried blood on her inner thigh. And it kind of, it, it matches up to the knife handle touching her thigh. Mm-hmm. So, back to where there should be fingerprints on items that she touched. There were no fingerprints on that blade of the knife that she was sexually assaulted with. Mm-hmm. None. There's no fingerprints on there. It's just her DNA. That's it. Blood. No fingerprints. But, then again, that raises the question... What about Adams? Shouldn't his be somewhere? There's a logical explanation for that. Uh, basically, Adam took a shower, he said, right before he discovered Rebecca's body. And there is uh, something – some people Some people are non-sequiters. Like they um, don't leave their sweat, especially after they shower. And the only reason why, from what I understand, why uh, the family believes that um, Adam may be this type of person was because the stuff that Adam said he touched, said that he handled, there were no fingerprints or anything on there. Did he wipe everything down? I don't know. Could it be he took that shower and just didn't leave uh, what he normally should, which has happened with people before? I don't know. But the fact that none of his fingerprints are anywhere, I believe, is evidence itself because he's admitted to touching things. And no fingerprints. Is that pretty much it in a nutshell? Yes. When three women disappear in Santa Ana, California, without a trace, it takes one bold, unwavering detective to seek justice. Detective Julissa Trapp has always wanted to be a cop, but she's the only woman on an otherwise all-male homicide squad. But uh, she does her job in ways that you and I would probably say is unconventional, perhaps. There's a brand new podcast from Wondery and the Los Angeles Times. In this podcast, Detective Trap takes you right into the life of a cop who conducts herself relentlessly. Hosted by award-winning journalist Chris Gofford, Detective Trap is the story of a detective who fights through her many personal battles. And, of course, she has to deal with society's indifference to murder, especially three missing women. She goes through all of this and is still able to bring a killer to justice. Trap's strongest resource for catching a dangerous criminal? Personal experience. While listening, make sure to subscribe to Detective Trap on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you happen to be listening right now. You can also find the link in the episode notes. Like I said, you know, that's why we really just want a different agency to look at this. Right. Because with these inconsistencies, they they said they've dumped a ton of resources into this. Well, <laughs> apparently it wasn't enough. Mm-hmm. Because if you have dumped all these resources in there, well, your basic one of listening and proper reporting is where you failed. I mean, when, when, a, when a person tells you that a certain thing happened, you should verify it to see if it did. 
Right. Adam said he loosened the knot. Well, that didn't make it anywhere out of that room. Mm-hmm. The tape recorder. And then that was it. It didn't make it anywhere else. They tell us that he passed the polygraph. Well, he did not. Mm-hmm. They, they say that she held this knife. Well, she did in a very odd way. Very strange way. Well, yeah. nobody holds a knife that way. Especially to cut something. And Absolutely then. Absolutely not. He sexually assaulted with a knife handle. Mm-hmm. You know, her blood is on that. Now, we were actually told that maybe she held that knife between her legs while she was cutting the rope. That's what we were told. Now, this was after uh, December 7th, 2018. Okay, but well, let me just tell you, when you go to cut a rope, the first position I don't think of is putting the knife between my legs and cutting. I mean, I don't know. It doesn't make any sense. I can't even think about it. My feels like my head's going to explode. So they really thought that was an option. No, it's not. And yeah. you're not going to get blood on the knife that way. Now, right. he did have like, there was like a small rope burn type of abrasion or injury she had. And usually like when you get a rope burn, it's like, uh, it's like on the bottom side of your finger, you know, where you pull. Mm-hmm. But it was up on the tops. It was in a weird, weird location. You have to, it's in a weird spot. So. Another thing that needs to be looked at and answered. Let's go back to the very beginning. And then I will ask you a final question that should wrap up the whole the whole interview. Before we go to the very beginning of the case, let's cover one more point here. The handwriting on the wall. I'm assuming they asked for a sample of Rebecca's handwriting, right? No. Okay. And you're going to say no, that was a setup, obviously, because that just, it kills me. You have handwriting, you would get a sample of somebody's handwriting just to see if it even resembled, not even to get an expert, just to look at it and say, well, this does kind of look like her handwriting. They didn't even ask for it. And if they had asked for it, they would have seen that it is as far away from Rebecca's handwriting as it possibly could be. Is that a pretty good statement? Yes, that is a very good statement. She, the handwriting on the door... Uh, that was painted. It's in block letters, and it's and it's painted. Uh, now, it is difficult to match up handwriting identically to the person did it. When you when you use paint, or you know, like if you're using like a spray paint can, or if you're using like a big brush. Um, but the the brush that was used for for this, you would have held just like a pencil. Mm-hmm. So it it can be close to what your handwriting would be as far as your styles, the the direction that they lean, and just visual how it looks. I am not a handwriting expert, so I, I couldn't tell you anything more about it than what I just said. However, when you look at Rebecca's handwriting and you look at Adam, Adam's handwriting, there is no way this looks anything like Rebecca's handwriting. Mm-hmm. I mean, just not there. It, it's it, it, Surprisingly, it looks just like Adam's. Um, what a shock. The, he's got some characteristics with the A and the M that match up directly with what has appeared on the door. But then, aside from just that, like I said, you would expect DNA or fingerprints on what Rebecca had to touch. They're not found anywhere near that door where that was painted. Nowhere. Mm-hmm. Hers or anybody's. So, if somebody else would have done that, they didn't leave anything at all. 
So you would kind of expect Rebecca to have her hand planted somewhere or her palm, and you would expect to see paint like on the digits of her hands, like what she's touching. Right. Because this paint's getting, she has, she does have paint on her, but the paint that is on her is not on the meaty portion or the any part of her hand that would require her to touch. Mm-hmm. So she could put her hand flat down on a white piece of paper and be no paint on the paper. But there's paint on her body. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, that, that's the part I don't get. If there's paint on the rope, there's, there's paint quite a bit of places through here, but none of it is on the, sur- the, the palm surface of her hand. Mm-hmm. Or it should be. It should be, and, it, and it's not, which is another reason why we would just want another agency to look at this. So let's talk about how this all got started. Very Two tragic events happened. Jonah Shack and I had a, a small son, I believe Max, six years old. He had an accident in the house, in the mansion, while Rebecca was there, and they theorized that he fell over the railing and uh, he eventually died from his injuries. So now he has this accident. Rebecca does everything she can uh, to save him. I believe even the, the family said that she did everything she could. Okay, so Max is now in the hospital. They don't know, but the family doesn't know his exact condition yet because they have to do an MRI. Now, the theory the police have is that Jonah Shackney called Rebecca and basically blamed her for Max's condition because he had been told that that uh, that Max wasn't going to survive, and it was from that guilt that Rebecca created this whole big, uh, you know, big theatrical, I guess is what you would call it, suicide. But from your understanding and from your what you have had people tell you directly. Rebecca felt horrible, but she didn't feel guilty. So let's start with the the tragic accident. Max is still alive. He's at the hospital. You know, Adam comes in. Uh, other family members come in, I believe. Let's take it from there. He's at the hospital, and then Rebecca picks somebody up at the airport. Let's talk. Let's start with that story. What happened there? Max falls and. The only people that we're aware of that come in, um, Jones is already there. Ne- uh, Dina is already there. Nina comes in, and I believe with her son, maybe somebody else. But when she came in, I believe she was just by herself. I don't remember, or, or I don't know. And then Adam. Those are the only people that Becky picked up at the airport uh, that came in because Max had fallen. Um, and... Well, Nina had a conversation with Rebecca. Now, Nina is Max's mother, correct? No, it's going to be Max's aunt. aunt sorry, Max's aunt. This is uh, the mother's sister, and they're twins. So Max's aunt has a, a conversation with Rebecca. Yeah, they're in the car together. They're driving. And, I mean, she did. She gave an interview. Uh, police did interview her. And they recorded it as well. And in that interview... Uh, she said that Rebecca never assumed any type of responsibility. She never, uh, for Max's accident. Like, it, she never said it was her fault. She said she was sorry for the situation. Well, th- she says this to, 
Adam says kind of the same thing as well, and so does Jonah. I don't remember who said what to who, Mm -hmm. but all three of those people all say that Rebecca never felt responsible. She never felt guilt directly toward Max. She said that, or they said that, she said she was sorry for the incident, but she wasn't sorry like she had taken ownership for what had happened. And she did. I mean, Becky really felt bad. I mean, Mm -hmm. she was really nervous. I mean, they all were. Um, You know, with Max, I mean, poor kid. I mean, no one should have to go through that. Horrible. Yeah, it's terrible. Um, And my heart goes out to to them for that. But, But with Becky dying, even when they're interviewing, you know, after Becky's killed, they're they're interviewing these witnesses. They all say the same thing that Rebecca never never took some ownership for it. Mm-hmm. You know, she was sorry for it, but from that, the sheriff, the investigators say that she felt responsible for Max's death. Well, there's no one said that. There was a some type of she was a uh, oh she's she's like a a psych nurse, and mm-hmm. she was riding with police. Uh, I believe it was in Coronado the day Max had fell, his accident. And she deals with people who are emotionally unstable, suicidal, and she can evaluate them to see if they need to be admitted to the hospital. Um, she talked to Becky that day that mm-hmm. Max had fell, fallen, and she didn't see any indicators that Rebecca felt responsible or was suicidal, mm-hmm. which, I mean, that, that's that's an important fact. Very important. So you have a, a professional who who is trained to see, you know, emotionally disturbed people, and she says she didn't have any signs at that time. And okay. so, okay, I'm sorry, please continue. Um, you've got all the witnesses that they're interviewing saying Rebecca, she was staying busy, she was being supportive. Um, two of these witnesses that they interview say talk about how strong Rebecca is as a person, um, how she can take on quite a bit. She's mentally capable. Um, you know, she, mm-hmm. she has these regiment workouts that are difficult. I mean, it takes a strong-willed person to keep your body in shape. I mean, to do that every day, to push yourself that hard, you know, to make sure you do stay in shape because you want to be healthy. I mean, they're describing Rebecca as she's this you, you could leave kids with her. Kids are safe with her. She's responsible. And, you know, she's mentally tough. Mm-hmm. And then you, ter- you twist that to, well, she felt responsible for the guilt of Max. But there's, there's n- no one said anything to this entire investigation to support that. Very if they true. did, it's, it's not documented on anything that we have read in their report. But let's go to this phone call because... It's true. Nobody has said that Rebecca felt guilty. She felt terrible, but she didn't feel responsible. Human nature, it could change. She could have changed had she been told by Jonah, you're responsible. You did this. Max is going to die because of you. She could have felt horribly guilty after that. Now, that's, and I'm totally paraphrasing, but that was the gist of the, of the message that was left on Rebecca's phone and supposedly after she listened to it is when she started the uh the ball rolling and committing suicide let's talk about that phone call well about that phone call like i said no one has ever heard it no one has ever confirmed it was there or was not there um 
this goes back to another agency really needs to look at this, and this is one of the, another important fact. So Rebecca's phone is booked into is seized, just like any agency would take it. And I don't know if it's booked in or if it's just left in some detective's drawer, but it has to be powered on and maintained to charge because over the next six weeks, 20,000 kilobytes of data is removed from her phone. It, it, we have her phone records, and you can see where it's been removed. So somebody was, really er- somebody was erasing something is, is what that means, right? Well, the, the data had been removed from her phone. Um, I, we don't know what was removed. Mm-hmm. But when it was finally downloaded, my phone number was wrong. Mary's phone number was wrong. So you, obviously it's been altered. Okay. From whatever. It, yeah, my phone number wasn't even in there. Hmm. And she, she talked to me uh, the day Max fell. Mm-hmm. Um, my wife's number was, was the wrong number that was in her, that they were able to extract. So, I mean, some of the, the data was not the original data. Now, okay. this, this, it wasn't like it happened right away. And this goes on for six weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, so it wasn't properly handled. So any information that would come from that phone would, would be worthless now because you've allowed it to be altered while it was in your custody. Um, there was never that I read in their report any preservation of evidence sent to the cell phone provider of Rebecca's phone. Mm-hmm. Could maybe to try and extract that, that cell phone, that voicemail message. That was never done. Okay. Um, also, while her phone was uh, with Sheriff, or the investigators at Sheriff's office, um, there were two phone calls. Her phone was used to make two phone calls to her own voicemail. Uh, one was a three-minute or one-minute phone call, and the other one was a three-minute uh, phone call. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't see anywhere in the report where someone had said, I accessed the phone, I called this voicemail for this reason, and the next day, I, ac- I again accessed her voicemail for this reason. None mm-hmm. of that's written in there. Okay. Um, now, this is done. It's it's over 30 days. It's into August. Um, give me a second. I got the date. I have the date. August 2000. It would have been August 15th mm-hmm. and August 16th when uh, these were accessed. So you're looking at... Just over, that's it, 30 days, because it's 13th, she was killed on the 13th, so over 30 days goes by. What was the year again, just for our audience? 2011. 2011, okay. Now, this same investigator, the investigator that was the lead on this case, told us that um, she did, she waited 30 days before she tried to get this voicemail. I don't know why, this is like a, a crucial point of the investigation. Mm-hmm. You've got a, a voicemail that set her in motion to do all these things. Mm-hmm. Why would you wait 30 days to even access that? doesn't make any sense. No, it really doesn't, because that's like something important. You know, they they told us that they about two weeks, this is when we were out in San Diego, we fly home. They said in about two weeks they, they would touch base with us because they wanted to interview uh, Rebecca's youngest sister. We mm-hmm. said, that's fine. Well, they showed up on the plane behind us, you know. Mm-hmm. So you were in a hurry to get out here to interview her. Well, what about this? This is something that you have. I realize it's not going anywhere, but it is going somewhere because to get voicemails, you have a certain window. 
Mm-hmm. And they knew that, and they, they waited beyond that window to even try and get that message. Which so the voicemail is gone. The voicemail that Jonah said he left is gone. Yeah, nobody's heard it. Mm-hmm. Um, but if that's the one, if that is your sole reason that this message, she heard this message and then she did this, well, then you should be getting that message. And they made no attempt. They didn't. They didn't subpoena the phone company to see if it was on the server somewhere. They just let. They let it expire. If they did subpoena the phone company to get it, it's not in any documents that I have. Mm-hmm. They let it ex- expire naturally, basically. So it, if it was ever there, it was gone. So we just have Jonah's word now that he left this mean voicemail. But, and this is very important, the timing. When supposedly he left this voicemail saying that Max wasn't going to make it, the family had not been told that. It wasn't until after Rebecca had actually uh, died that they were told this. So let's talk about the timing and the timeline of that phone call, if it ever did take place. When the phone call was made, what did the family know about Max at that time? When, which phone call? Are you talking about the... The one that Jonah said that he left the message that said Max wasn't going to make it. Well, that's what he had said. So that's going to be the night of the 12th. No, I'm sorry. That day is wrong. It, yes, it would be the 12th. Mm-hmm. July 12th at night. You mean, August, you mean, oh, July 12th, right. Okay. This is July. And it's going to be, I want to say it was around midnight. I don't have it right in front of me. Mm-hmm. Actual time, but it's right around midnight going into the 13th. So, uh, Basically, is what happened was Becky picked up Adam at the airport and picked up Jonah at the hospital. They went to get something to eat. She drops Jonah back off at the Ronald McDonald house. Um, and then uh, Rebecca and Adam go back to the house. He goes to the guest house. Rebecca goes to the main house. Uh, she's on the phone with Mary at the time. And uh, from there, Jonah then calls Rebecca and leaves this voicemail. And that's like, like I said, around midnight ish, mm-hmm. somewhere. Um, then Rebecca, her voicemail is in access and the voice and the message is listened to. Um, now the doctor, I believe his name is Dr. Peterson. Um, that's Max's doctor. He testified that he did not tell the family anything, uh, about Max until the MRI was done which was July 13th in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. So at this time, Rebecca's already been killed. Right. And if, as far as they knew, uh, they were waiting to see. I'm sure they had all kinds of hope when this voicemail happened that nobody has heard. All the communication that we were getting from Rebecca about Max was they're hopeful, they're waiting for more tests. This is when she's still alive. They're waiting for more tests. Uh, to determine what's going on with it. And, you know, Rebecca wasn't up in the room. I mean, she didn't see, she didn't see Max. She didn't see the doctors. She's not seeing the nurses. I mean, mm-hmm. she's not, she's not getting that sense. The only information that she's getting is coming from, uh, Jonah about Max. I mean, that, that, that's her source of information for Max's condition. Right. So, you, you know, Jonah is experiencing everything as far as, you know, the doctor's expression, the nurse's expression, you know, seeing his son, which, I mean, it's tough. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's hard to hard. Um, but everything we were getting from Rebecca was they were hopeful and they're waiting on another test, which is this, this MRI was like the big test. Mm-hmm. And 
once that MRI came but they couldn't do it because there was so much swelling. At least that's what the doctor was talking about when he was testifying. Okay. Um, and when they got that test back, that's when they knew it was bad. His injuries were more severe than what they thought. And that was after Rebecca was dead when they got that information. Wow. Doug Laner, this has been uh, a very intense interview, but something that is needed. It, it, the interview, your words and, and Mary's words, need to get out to the public because a lot of people, I'm, they're all aware of Rebecca Zahal. Recently, HLN just did another special on Rebecca Zahal's case because of the civil case where Adam Shacknine was found responsible for the death of Rebecca because the San Diego Sheriff's refusal to reopen the case and the coroner's refusal to label the case a murder. The case is really still active, at least in the family's point of view. But here's the thing, Doug. Now, especially nowadays, true crime is everywhere. You can't get away from it. It's at every turn. So I sometimes I think people feel inundated with true crime facts. So as we wrap up today, let's break down the basic most important reasons why you feel this case should be reopened and the manner of death should be changed to murder. Let's just take them one by one, as simple and as strongly as you can make them, so people will have that in their memory. I can make this real simple. Um, there's been, uh, you cannot recreate the scene that Rebecca was killed in without as a single person. It cannot be done. It's been tried. It's been attempted over, you know, several times. And they cannot recreate that scene. There's investigational errors that, well, in that complaint that we, we sent to the sheriff's office that should be looked at and evaluated and reassessed. Um, that's enough. Just, I mean, because everything in this, when you look at this, when you... It, it everything in this is is, is a homicide. Mm -hmm. That I mean, it is a homicide, and it should be treated as such, and looked at to as such. So if the sheriff's done, fine, be done. Why don't you just pass it on to somebody else and let them look at it? If you're, right. you've got no reason not to. There's no reason that you can't say, look, we, there's been a lot of scrutiny on this case. There's been some mistakes made. Give it to somebody else and let them look at it. Mm -hmm. You know, but don't just let them look at it. Openly look at it. You know, talk to the family again on both sides. Everybody. You that's know? all you're asking. That's all you're asking. Yes, that's it. It's mm -hmm. pretty simple. Right. And we have Adam, who they said passed uh, Shaq Knight passed a polygraph of flying colors, when in reality there was deception. Uh, and we can well, even on their own. Uh, that's just it. They told us that he passed with flying colors. Right. In their own report, they wrote it was inconclusive. So, and mean, to come back for another one, right. And then you had it looked at, and it was found to be uh, deception. Correct. Right there. Again, the loosening of the wrist knots, another reason. Please, everybody, remember this. Rebecca's hands were tied behind her back. The detective himself demonstrated to Rebecca's family how this, if this was a murder, how it would have gone down. There would have been a bruise on her back from a knee holding her down. The uh, wrist knots would have been tight. Now we find out Rebecca does have a bruise on her back, and Adam Shacknai admits to loosening 
the knots to try and get a pulse. And he mentions it several times in a recorded interview. He loosened those knots. When Rebecca's body got to the coroner and he writes, loose knots on the wrists, well, not true. It is not how she was found. And like you said, Doug, they've tried to recreate this. They cannot. The sheriff's department, they did a recreation and it looked like, oh, okay, yeah. But no, it wasn't even, tell us about that recreation and then we'll we'll let you get back to your family. No, it's what they did. They, they, have, uh, they have someone who ties himself up with a rope. The rope's different, same color, wrong rope, and the knot is wrong. So, no, they, they failed. They did not get that right. Um, if you're going to try and do a reenactment, at least get, you know, the knot itself. I get you may not be able to get the exact same knot that Rebecca did, but we, we seem to find a guy that could. Mm-hmm. Um, his is, well, I take that back. His is relatively close in how it looks in appearance, whereas the, recreate, the reenactment that the sheriff did is not. Mm-hmm. The... The knot that was on Rebecca, the the knot itself is away from her fingers. It's like at the top of the cuff. Mm-hmm. The recreation that the sheriff's office did, the knot's at the bottom, close to your fingers. Well, of course you can do that. Mm-hmm. Okay, if you're going to do it, do it right. Right. Try and sell something wrong. And that was wrong. It was not a, an accurate depiction of what the knot that was on Rebecca. Mm-hmm. It, it's a different knot. It's wrong. Just like where the blood came from on the knife. Okay, she's got her blood on her, but you give me this guy off the way it happened. Adam loosened the knots, but let's not tell anybody. Right. Keep a secret. So, yes, you can go on and on and on with a lot of things in here. And it's, it's, you just give it to a different agency. Give me, let us meet with somebody else. People, you gotta, you've gotta believe in, in Rebecca's family. All they want, all, all you really want is the truth. And let's look at these things and explain these things. If there's another explanation, then let's hear it and have another agency take a look at it. That's it. Just let another agency look at it. Let us sit down. You know, well, you don't have to let us sit down with anybody. I would love to sit with, like, the local DA, have a meeting with her. Mm-hmm. Say, this is what we have. This is it. You know, go from there. And But another agency needs to look at this. They really do. You can't allow someone to be murdered and just say, it's okay. You can't say that. No. And hopefully you will get the justice that uh, Rebecca certainly deserves. Thank you, Doug. Thank you so much. And again, if you or your incredible lawyer, Keith Greer, need anything, just give us a call. We'll help you any way we can, okay? Will do. Take care now, Doug. Until we meet again, my darling true crime angels, Trisha Griffith saying so long. It's WebSleuth's radio podcast, and we'll see you again soon. Don't forget, patreon.com if you want to support WebSleuth. Five bucks a month. Great way to listen for extra content. Bye-bye.